we've we've seen that in in Haggai uh, the symbolism of the rebuilding of the temple, which is what he, along with Zechariah, has been raised up to um, to make sure is happening. Um, that although for them it was rebuilding the physical temple in Jerusalem, that the symbolism for us is is a picture of our own individual Christian lives and our life together as the corporate church. So the relevance of Haggai to us is that he was urging them to build a physical temple, um, but it relates to us in the sense that we're going to see uh, the ministry of a prophet urging us to build our own individual Christian lives <clears throat> and also to make sure that we're building our life together as the corporate church. And we saw last time that uh, the Bible makes it clear that we are temples of the Holy Spirit individually, but we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as the corporate church. And of course, not just us as a church, but all churches and uh, all believers throughout you know, time and space like. And of course, it's important to see the connection all the time that it is our individual Christian lives and our church life. And those two things have to all the time be built up together. And of course, the reason is that quite simply, our life together as a corporate church is only going to be as strong in the Lord as we are as the individuals who make it up. So the point is that if you have a church if the individuals who make up that church, if those individuals aren't building their own individual Christian lives, then to that extent you're going to have a church that isn't being built up in the Lord at all. Because a church is only going to be as strong in the Lord as the individuals who make it up. And of course um, that, that, that goes one step further as well, and we were talking about this um, on Saturday uh, with Robert and Janice and it's the point as well and we saw this when we did the church life series but you know this is kind of like you know a good place to just remind ourselves of it as well and that whereas as Christians obviously as a corporate church we are the family of God it also goes to show as well that it's vitally important to realize that as the corporate family of God we're only going to be as strong as we are in our individual families as separate units as it were at home and we saw this in the church life series and that um you know sort of like we we saw there very much that it's only as individual families are strong in the lord and strong as units of the individual family that they can then bring that strength along to to make up the family of the corporate church and um, throughout the Bible it's made very, very clear. I mean, Paul said, for instance, um, that he who does not support his own family is worse than an unbeliever. Now, that's the principle in the Bible. Um, and of course, it's important to realise that, I mean, sometimes, I mean, if you don't live at home with a family, you know, like single people, well, obviously to a certain extent it doesn't relate to them because like, you know, the corporate family of the church is all they've got. But for those of us who are in families at home, um, it's important for us to realise that you cannot escape from family at home into the church. It won't work. 
sometimes people try to do that you know that they'll they'll dive into a church almost as an escape from problems at home and family responsibilities well in actual fact quite the opposite is true to be part of a church to be growing in the Lord in that corporate sense is of course all the time to be becoming more and more as the Word of God says in regards to our responsibilities at home as families so therefore um, for the Christian husband the whole time his individual life with the Lord and his church life is going to be making him a better husband a wife her individual life with the Lord and her involvement in the corporate church life will make her a different wife a, a better wife and it's the same with children and so it works all the way through and so therefore all the time there's a relationship between our individual lives with the Lord our lives together in the corporate church but also our existence at home as individual families and all these things have to fit together and of course realizing the whole time um, you know that at the end of the day a family is only as strong in the Lord as the individuals who make that family up and the corporate church is only as strong as the families that make it up those families being made up by the individuals and so it's tremendously important the whole time to see that as we build up our lives individually in the Lord that that is going to relate into our church life and obviously into our lives as families but we mustn't ever think that we can kind of like be part of a church and that is enough that, that therefore you know this sense that the church can carry us along and we don't have to be building up ourselves in the Lord individually because at the end of the day Jesus saved us as individuals uh, one day I am going to face the Lord I mean you're going to face the Lord as well but I'm going to face the Lord and I'm going to be accountable not for your life but for my life and that ultimately is what Haggai is all about and uh, basically we're going to see uh, tonight and um, the next talk that, um, that, that God brought four messages through Haggai to the people and uh, it was um, over, over a period of four months by our calendar um, it was you know the year was 520 BC and in our calendar it was from September to December so the first word from the Lord uh, came through him in September as it were and the last one is uh, was in December and, uh, and you'll remember the work on the temple had halted 15 years earlier it shouldn't have done so now Haggai is raised up and he's coming to the people to say look the work that you started then and that you've you've lapsed you've slacked now it's time to get going so tonight we're going to do chapter one which contains message number one and uh, so I think we'll, we'll start actually by by just reading the chapter together <clears throat> in the second year of King Darius on the first day of the sixth month the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And we saw who they were historically last time. This is what the Lord Almighty says. So here's the first message coming through. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. 
Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses, while this house, i.e. the temple, remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house that remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labour of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to, of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. <clears throat> so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So what we've got is that the Lord speaks to them. He says, look, I know what you're saying. And what you're saying in your hearts is the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. And basically what's happening um, is that the people of Israel or in Jerusalem, but also the leadership as well, um, you know, they're they're doing it, Zerubbabel and Joshua as well, they're rationalising the fact that the work has lapsed. I mean, they were fully aware that 15 years earlier they started something that they haven't finished. They're perfectly aware of that. And yet now, and probably because they all crumbs, here comes a prophet. And, and, and it can always be a bit dodgy when a prophet turns up, because you know God's going to speak. 
So the point is that there are times, aren't there, when we know that God's word is going to get a little bit close for comfort and we ready our self-protective arguments. And the self-protective argument that they kind of trot out is that they rationalise the fact that they're not working on the temple anymore and they're saying, oh, well, of course, it's not the right time. You know, sort of like it's not, you know, sort of like it's, it's not God's will that we're doing it now. But remember, the context is, that's why they went back into the land 15 years earlier. They knew full well this was God's will. This isn't something, you know, that they haven't started, that God is yet to speak to them about. This is building the temple that they knew full well God had set them the task of doing 15 years earlier. And they've, they've dropped that task, they're slacking on it, but they rationalise it and they're saying that, you know, oh no, it's not God's time yet. It's God's will that we're not doing anything about it. And I suppose, to a certain extent, they were correct that it wasn't God's will in the sense that they should have done it 15 years earlier. I mean, if they hadn't have slacked, the temple would have been built. So I suppose when they're saying, well, it's not God's time to build the temple now, well, no, technically it wasn't. 15 years earlier was. Uh, you know, but nevertheless, you know, they know that a prophet has been raised up and, and the old, you know, sort of like self-protective, um, you know, sort of like arguments are, are there. And, um, and of course, when that is the case with God's people, the Lord has to kind of like be using circumstances to get their attention. And the Lord knows that there are lots of things that he wants to tell us that, you know, that we don't just kind of, oh, oh yeah, that's right, Lord, I hear you, yeah, as good as done, and off we go and do it. The Lord knows that often we're of harder heart than that and that we're, we're slow of hearing. And it's often through circumstances that the Lord works to really get our attention, to prepare us for what he's saying to us, uh, sometimes in ways that we just can't deny it any longer. And if we just read through, you know, verse 5 and 6 again, uh, you'll, you'll see uh, how it was that God had been working to get their attention so that when Haggai did eventually speak God's word, there'd, there'd be something in the people's circumstances to really back up what he was saying. And basically, what is God saying to them? Look, your experience over these last few years has been this. You've planted much, but you've harvested little. Right? So you've done all your planting, but you haven't harvested much. You eat, but you never have your fill. You're hungry. You never get enough. You're still hungry. You drink, but you never get your fill of that. After you drink, you're still thirsty. Uh, you put on clothes, but nevertheless you're not warm. And uh, you earn wages, but you earn wages to put them in a purse with holes. And then in verse 9, he says, you expected much, but it turned out to be little. And then he says, what you brought home, I blew away. And then in verse 10 and 11, you've got, therefore, the heavens withheld their dew and the earth their crops. And that you've got kind of um, drought conditions which are making their harvest fail even more. So, these are the physical circumstances that they're in. Since they've stopped work on the temple, everything has gone wrong in regards to their provision. All right. You know, that God's blessing, the blessings that he said would be on them, abundant harvests and rain in due season and all this sort of stuff, uh, financial prosperity, these were all the promises 
uh, to Israel while they were in the land if they were in fellowship with God. And now all these blessings have been revoked. And so therefore we can see that they're under the discipline of God and that they would have known just from reading the Old Testament scriptures that that was always a sign that God was kind of disciplining them trying to get their attention to indicate some kind of unrepentant behavior whatever it was that he wanted them to address so that was their situation all right but remember we saw last week that obviously the external in their circumstances represents to us in new testament times the internal that the physical represents the spiritual so for them it was the physical temple for us, it's the fact of that we are the temple, individually and as churches. And so what, what we need to relate this to isn't, isn't the external circumstances of our lives, but the way that this relates to us is by asking questions about the quality of our internal spiritual lives. So the point is, for them, it was harvest which was obviously what they literally ate and drank. It was the means of their survival. But for them, it was physical harvests. For us, the equivalent is the spiritual fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because that's the harvest that God calls us to, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, long-suffering, the character of the Christian life, the very character of Jesus. And so the thing is that we're taking what Haggai was saying to them that related to their physical circumstances and we're relating it to ourselves spiritually. And the way that I sum up the circumstances that God was using to get their attention so that when Haggai said, look, you should be building the temple, because it's so easy as, oh no, it's not God's time at the moment, all right? But the circumstances that God was using to get their attention, all right, so that they take Haggai a bit more seriously, I'd sum it up as this. And remember, for them, it relates to their physical harvest. For us, it relates to our spiritual fruit. It relates to how we're doing in the Christian life. And their situation could be summed up as this. It's simply that they just weren't getting anywhere. They were not getting anywhere. The promised fruit, the harvests that God had promised them in Scripture, like the blessings that they should have been enjoying as God's people in Canaan, those blessings, symbolized by the richness of their harvests, those blessings were just not happening they weren't getting anywhere. So for us, the equivalent circumstances that we'd be looking for or at in our own lives would be the idea that um, not growing in the Lord, um, not coming into maturity, not seeing that steady increase of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to be seeing is that if indeed any believer suffering from those symptoms, 
So any believer that those symptoms that I've just, you know, sort of said, any believer that that applies to, then we're going to be seeing tonight what the disease is and also what the cure is. So we're seeing at the time of Haggai, God's people, they just weren't getting anywhere. All right? And the reason that they weren't getting anywhere was because they weren't doing the work that God had called them to do. Doesn't mean that they weren't doing any work, but they weren't doing the work that God had called them to. They had dropped building the temple and were getting on with everything else. And to get their attention, God was withholding blessing that they could have otherwise expected to see. So that's the symptoms, all right. And what we're going to do now is to see the actual diagnosis. We're going to home in on what the disease actually is. Now then, verse 2 and then verse 4. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? And then the second half of verse 9. Because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. So the point was, these people, they'd gone back into the land, they'd resettled into Jerusalem, and God had told them, build my temple. Now, he hadn't told them they couldn't build houses of their own. Of course they were free to build houses of their own. But what's happening now is that they've dropped the work on the temple, and they're concentrating only on their own houses. So that what is actually happening is that building their own houses is more important to them than building the house of the Lord. And what you've got here is quite simply, their priorities have changed from putting the Lord first to putting themselves first. Their priorities have shifted. When they went back into the land, it was the Lord first, and they were building his house. They were still building their houses, but his house came first. All right? Now they've changed it, and what's happening is they've pushed building the temple out completely, and so the equivalent would be in the Christian life when our individual discipleship and when our corporate church life ends up relegated and other priorities coming in and pushing that out. So what we're talking about here is the process whereby the Lord, who was number one in their lives, bit by bit is being pushed out so that other things take his place. And what you've got is that it doesn't matter what they do, they sow and they sow, but they don't reap much. They eat, they eat, 
they're still hungry they drink they drink they're still can you see it looked like chasing their tails and getting absolutely nowhere and that is a sign of believers whose priorities are subtly changing but changing for the worse now let me just bring out something else that that kind of reminds me of those verses you sow but you harvest little you blah 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 it's it, it sort of like you know i sort of it, it reminds me of and, and this is so so true of our our modern life rush 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 eat drink earn busy 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 clothes things stuff loads of money that's what it reminds me of that's what it sounds like can you see the point well, if you can't yet, you will in a minute. Because let's read those verses now in a slightly different way, okay? Because obviously, to this extent, I mean, you know, they were planting, but they literally weren't getting enough. But there are two ways of not getting enough. The first way is not getting enough because you literally haven't got enough. But the second way of not getting enough is when people have the perception that they haven't got enough because they always want more. Alright? Now if we go back to verses 5 and 6, look, you've planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but aren't warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now, I'd, I'd sum this up as the phenomenon. You meet it in so many people, and sadly, you meet it in so many Christians as well. And it's the peculiar phenomenon that we've got today of people who have got plenty talking as if they're poor, as if they haven't got enough as if they can barely make ends meet. Of course, the reason is they're spending, you know, sort of such a high proportion of their income on their own pleasures that, you know, at the end of the week, you know, the wages are all gone. And so they talk poor. We haven't got any money. It's only because they've been spending it all. And it's a phenomenon that we, we see more and more today. And of course, what this is summing up is a kind of an outlook on life that you would sum up as being unfulfilled, discontented, never happy, never satisfied. And that is the opposite to what the Christian should be. Because, of course, the point is, the Bible tells us that having food and clothing, let us be therewith content. And yet here, we're seeing in God's people whose priorities have changed. It's not the Lord first anymore. Other things have come in to take his place. And one of the signs of it is this sense of unfulfilled, discontented, not happy, dissatisfied with one's lot. And I'll tell you what we're actually seeing here tell you what it is that these, Christ these believers here at the time of Haggai are suffering from. And Jesus told a parable in order to warn us against it. And it's the parable of the sower. 
So what we're going to do now is if you go to Matthew chapter 13, and obviously this is a parable that we're all very familiar with, but nevertheless I want to really show you that this is what we're dealing with here at the time of Haggai. Right, so Matthew 13. Start from verse 1. Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Large crowds gathered round him, and he got in a boat and sat in it while the people stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. There's seed number one. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. <coughs> Seed number two. Now we come on to number three. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Now seed number four. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Now, if you go down to verse 18, Jesus explains this parable. He says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears about the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So seed number one of people who hear the gospel, the seed is, is, is chucked at them, but it doesn't take root at all, doesn't grow. I, these are unbelievers who hear the gospel and reject it. So seed number one is those who reject the gospel, unbelievers. All right? Now then, seed number two. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. Ah, so here we got someone, they've got converted. They receive it, you know, and they receive the word with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Ah, right. So seed number two, all right, this person, they become a Christian, they hear the gospel, they turn to Jesus, but as soon as they're tested on it, as soon as it starts to cost them something and people start laughing at them or maybe they realise I'm going to lose my friends or you know, maybe for some people even face harder persecution than that, immediately they fall away. So they're saved, they've come to the Lord, they're saved, they're children of God, but they fall away and go back to the world very quickly. All right. Now then, this is the one that interests us. The one who received the seeds that fell among the thorns, I mean, you know, the thorns here being the weeds and that, is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. Now, the thing to notice here, this is someone else who becomes a Christian, they receive the word and it starts to grow in them. They're saved. Now then, it takes a while 
for thorns to grow up and to choke a plant. So this isn't someone who falls away immediately, not like the last one we saw, soon as they're persecuted they fall away. This is someone, they followed the law for years. And you'll remember in the Bible, Paul talks about Demas. And Demas was on Paul's apostolic team for years. But when Paul was writing, towards the end of his life, he told Timothy that Demas was in love with the world and had deserted him. But Demas fell away, even though he'd been working closely with Paul for years. So what we've got here are people, they get converted, they follow the Lord, and you know, they follow the Lord for a while, they don't fall away immediately, but all the time there's this something that's growing around them, the thorns, and it's choking them. And what it is, it's the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And what happens is it chokes slowly until this person ends up more concerned for those things than they are about the Lord. And then Jesus goes on to say, the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. And here you have believers who endure to the end and Jesus remains their Lord all the time. They don't fall away because of persecution and they're able to resist the choking of the love of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life. And so they endure producing varying degrees of fruit. But can you see here the warning that Jesus is giving about the danger of the weeds growing up and choking us? And these weeds are the worries of this life, just just the the day-to-day, -day, you know, sort of like general survival in the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And of course, what's happening here, and it's what happened to the people in the time of Haggai, the danger is that bit by bit, slowly but surely, things that in themselves aren't wrong now, that has to be absolutely underlined three times in red ink. It's vitally important to understand. Things that are wrong, well, that's easy. You know, I mean, if someone's being tempted into adultery, obvious that's wrong. You know, I mean, you know, if people, you know, if sort of like, you know, someone's fiddling their taxes, well, of course that's wrong. They're all the totally black and white things. But the danger of the weeds is it's when things that in themselves aren't wrong, and what what's wrong with the fact that these people in the time of Haggai were building their houses? That wasn't wrong, there's nothing wrong in building a house. It was the fact that it had become more important to them and had displaced building God's house. Money, what's wrong with money? Nothing's wrong with money. Money can be a great blessing. But the Bible warns about the dangers of when money becomes a priority and pushes the Lord out 
from being number one in our lives. And there are all manner of things. Holidays, clothes, cars. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But the weeds and what had gone wrong in these people at the time of Haggai was the fact that these completely otherwise legitimate things had crept in and had taken the Lord's place on the throne of their lives. And so what we're seeing here is that there are loads of things which in themselves are fine, they're good things, there's nothing wrong with them at all. They're things that the Lord wants to bless in our lives, but any of these things can become deadly to us spiritually if they change our priorities so that they become more important to us when push comes to shove than following the Lord. So that is the disease that these people were suffering from. That is, you know, the diagnosis. We've seen what the symptoms are, and the disease is that they're big, you know, they're, they're, they're suffering from the weeds that have grown up around them and are choking them. So now we've got to move on and we've got to see the cure. That if, if someone recognises these symptoms and says, yes, I am suffering from the parable of the weeds and the thorns. I am being choked. My priorities are all wrong, all right? Therefore, they need to know what is the prescription that the Lord has written out for us? What is the medicine that the Lord has given us so that if we take it, we can be free um, of this particular disease? So now we need to actually look at the medicine. What do you do to combat this uh, when it is becoming a problem for us? And um, back in Haggai, if you go to verse 5 and then verse 7 the Lord says the same thing twice here this is what the Lord Almighty says give careful thought to your ways and then in verse 7 this is what the Lord Almighty says give careful thought to your ways and that's the first thing we must do. Basically, God is saying, look, it's time for a careful think. It's time for an honest appraisal. It's time to really have a look. Remember in that psalm, Lord, search me and try my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Basically, this is the Holy Spirit saying, stop. Just hold it. All this rush, rush, rush. All this whatever it is. All this, you know, sort of like, um, you know, well, I mean, whatever it is. Just stop. Just pause. Just hold it and have a careful think. And of course, it's tremendously significant that in the New Testament, the Greek word that the New Testament translates repentance is metanoia, which is the Greek word that means to think again. Repentance literally means to rethink something, to stop and rethink it and look at it from God's point of view. 
And that's the beginning of the cure. When we just step back and say, ah, yes, am I suffering from this particular disease? Yes, it looks like I've got the symptoms. Goodness, I've got to do something about it. That is the stopping. That is the repentance. That is the beginning of the cure when we begin to take stock of ourselves again from the Lord's point of view. And the beginning always of overcoming this danger of the weeds is when you look down and think, crumbs, I'm being enveloped by the weeds. Because they grow up so quietly. You don't hear them. You don't feel them until it's too late. But when you look down and think, crumbs, there's a veritable triffid crawling up my leg. That is when the day comes when we, we reassess this and think, crumbs, yes, I've got to start taking the medicine now. And then the second thing we have to do, verse 8, God says, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. And that's the second thing to do when one realises my priorities are wrong. Yes, look, there's a triffid crawling up my leg. Yes, there's definitely something wrong in my priorities. So then, what they had to do was stop what they were doing on their own houses. They come back to it. Remember, there was nothing wrong with the fact that they were building their houses. That was fine. The problem was they were building their houses and not the Lord's. All right? So now, what they do is they stop work on their houses they go up into the mountains, they chop down all the trees and all the timber they need, and they come back to Jerusalem and they get on with the work that they should have been doing all along. And that's the second thing we do. By our actions, by any reordering of life that is needed, we put our priorities back to what they should have been. And we put the Lord first again, making whatever changes are necessary to that. And you'll remember that when John the Baptist was railing against the Pharisees, the thing he said to them was, show fruit that befits repentance. You know, I mean, John the Baptist didn't want to hear the Pharisees, oh, I repent, I repent, I repent, all over the place. Of course the Pharisees repented all over the place. That was part of being a good Jew. And in order to be a good religious Jew, the Pharisees would have done anything. I mean, a good religious Jew gave money. So when the Pharisees gave money, they made sure it was done in the marketplace where everyone could see them, but for the totally wrong reasons. The good religious Jew prayed, so the Pharisees made sure that they prayed where everyone could hear them. And a good religious Jew repents of their sins. So you were never far from hearing a Pharisee, I repent of my sins. But the problem was, it was words only. They didn't live the life that showed they had turned from their sins. They hadn't put any repentance into actual action. And so here, they're not just saying, oh yes, our priorities are wrong, we've got to get back to building your house, Lord. Amen. And then off they go to, you know, sort of like do their front door. <laughs> they dropped their front door for the time being and went off and got to work on the temple. They showed the fruit that befitted repentance. And of course, what they were doing, and it says here, look, the Lord's saying, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. 
Now, there is nothing wrong with pleasure. And there is nothing wrong with us taking pleasure in things. Indeed, the Bible says that all things are there to be enjoyed. God has given us a beautiful world with so many things in it to enjoy. I mean, is it any coincidence that food tastes nice? No. Why? Well, because God didn't just want us to refuel ourselves, like putting petrol in a car. He wanted us to enjoy refueling ourselves. Is it any coincidence that procreation is fun? No. Because God didn't just want Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply. He wanted them to enjoy marriage in every form. So God wants us to take pleasure in things. He wants us to enjoy things. But the problem is, the moment that we put our own pleasures first, then we're giving God no pleasure. And yet here, God is saying, look, build my house that I can take pleasure in my house. And often we think, Lord, how can I, how can I actually give you pleasure? Well, I mean, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. <laughs> and here, God is saying, look, get back to building my house. I'll really enjoy that. They had it within themselves to bring the Lord pleasure. And that, that's the choice we make, to put the Lord's pleasure first or our own. But if we put our own pleasure first, and these are pleasures that are perfectly legitimate, but if we put them first and push the Lord out, then we are actually dishonouring him. Now, the thing that we've got to realise about this, this thing, the parable of the sower and this bit of it, the weeds, is that we've got to realise that you'll remember that Adam and Eve, all right, they tended paradise in a world that was perfect. There were no weeds, there were no thorns and thistles. But once they sinned, God cursed the ground because the whole universe a decay entered in because of Adam's sin. And one of the first results of that was that thorns and thistles grew up everywhere. So that now you might have a wonderful garden and God's given you a wonderful garden. Lucky old Jew, I look forward to having a wonderful garden myself. But you will notice that God doesn't look after it. You have to do that. Because the ground is cursed. Those weeds, those thorns, those thistles, they'll keep growing and they will keep coming back and it's a constant battle against them. I always remember that time when Robert Lee says he loved his garden so much he stood in the middle of his garden, he, he, he lifted the curse on his garden in the name of Jesus. And he soon noticed that it didn't work, but he had a bash because he was getting so fed up with having to, to do all the weeding all the time. But if you've got a garden, you've got to do weeding all the time. And the thing about the weeds, it's the same spiritually, is that the weeds threaten all of us all the time. We mustn't think, oh, you know, sort of like so-and-so has got a problem with weeds, as if the weeds are only growing up someone's leg here and there. The weeds are growing up around us all the time, so that all the time all of us have to be pulling the weeds up in our lives. If we don't, they will keep growing to the point where they consume us. Now, the thing with these people 
is because they'd slacked, because they pushed the Lord out, because their priorities were all wrong, they were believers, but they'd stopped weeding their lives. Because now, fundamentally, the weeds were what they were about. And before they know it, they're strangled and, and, and their spiritual lives are, are just completely up the kibosh and they're getting absolutely nowhere. We've got to make sure that our weeding is going on all the time. It takes constant awareness and it takes constant vigilance. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, <laughs> And verse 10, 10 to 12. And this is something that the Lord is saying to Israel shortly before they get into the land of Canaan. They've come out of slavery, they've gone through the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're about to go into this most fantastic land. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now notice this. The Lord is giving them the most amazing blessings. And the Lord wants them to be satisfied with those blessings. He wants them to enjoy them. But he says, but be careful lest when you're enjoying them, it pushes me out of your hearts. And the whole history of Israel in Canaan was that precisely that happened. And that was why when God had got pushed out of their hearts, it was those blessings he took away. He sent droughts, sent invading armies. But the point is, it doesn't make God think, well, the answer to this is I'll just never bless them in any material way, then they'll stay faithful to me. The Lord wants to bless us. But he wants us as well to make sure that when the blessings come, that we don't forget him. And that is why the warnings are there in the parable of the sower. So the point is, e even for us, I mean, the Lord does bless us. And often the Lord does prosper us. I mean, often, you know, sort of like people prosper in the Christian life if only because as people get right with God. I mean, think of the amount of money, for instance, that people just fritter away, you know, goes through their hands like water, fritter it away, nothing to show for it. Well, if someone becomes a Christian, surrenders their money to the Lord, starts being a good steward of it and not frittering it away on things that there's nothing to show for it at the end of the day, well, immediately you're better off. Because you'll probably notice that if you walk down, if two people walk down the road, all right, if one person every 50 yards throws a £10 note down the drain out of his wallet, by the time they get to the end of the road, the person who hasn't thrown his £10 notes down, down the drain is going to be better off than the person who has. So when you stop throwing your money away, when you become a Christian, obviously, if only because of that, suddenly you're better off. But often God does prosper people, and that's wonderful. He likes that. 
But the point is, we must always remember where we've come from, and that was out of our mother's womb, womb with nothing. That's where we came from. Everything we have is because God has given it to us. All right. And therefore, we must make sure that we don't forget where we've come from and that we never, ever take God's blessing, God's physical blessing, to us for granted in any way at all. So the Lord does prosper us, and that's right and fine and wonderful when he does, but we must be aware of the dangers. Now, one thing that I think does need saying is that regardless of how God does prosper us, I think it is good to realise that I think as Christians that what I would call exorbitance must be out as far as we are concerned. So regardless of how God blesses us physically, financially, I think we must be clear that exorbitance has got to be a no-go for the Christian. Oscar Wilde said this, my tastes are simple, I am always satisfied with the best. Now that is the ultimately worldly outlook and attitude of always being satisfied with the best. The antithesis of that is that you are not satisfied unless you've got the best. Now I am not advocating the completely false economy of Christians must only have what is cheap and nasty. I'm not advocating that either, because that can often be false economy anyway and end up costing you more. But the point is, we need to stay away from the attitude that ideally we want everything to be what I call top of the range. Now, that's dangerous for Christians who can afford to have things top of the range because the temptation is they can actually go and do it. Again, I'm not talking about cheap and nasty, but I'm talking about the best exorbitance, all right? But it's also a danger for those who can't afford to have the best. It's also a danger for those who can't even afford the cheap and nasty because of the sin of envy. Desperately wanting it and not being satisfied unless you get it. That's envy. That's jealousy. That's a sin as well. So we mustn't think that when we're talking about things, that things are only dangerous for those who can afford them. Things are equally dangerous for those who can't afford them either. And so what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that our attitude is absolutely in line with the Word of God in regards to the whole thing about, you know, sort of, lifestyle, the way we live in a practical way, day by day. Um, if you go to Philippians, and we're going to go through the important New Testament passages that deal with this. Philippians first. Chapter 4, and start from verse 11. And Paul says this, I have learned to be content whatever 
the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Paul knew both at different times in his life. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, can you see the amazing thing that Paul is saying there? He's saying fundamentally that the cake is Jesus. We can have our cake and eat it because we've got Jesus. We're saved. He's with us. We have eternal life. And remember that down here is, I would say to the book, not even the preface. It's the contents page. The book starts when we die or after the rapture. This is the blinking of an eye. We're headed for eternity. Down here is nothing in comparison to the eternity that we're going to spend as glorified beings like Jesus. That puts it all in perspective. So here, Paul is saying the cake is Jesus, is our salvation. We can have that and eat it. Now then, if life brings with it goodies materially and a ease and comfort, he's saying, if that comes along, well, let that be the icing on the cake. Wonderful. But if it's a cake without icing, so what? We've got the cake. And it's the cake that matters. The tragedy is that our sinful natures concentrate on the icing. You know, I mean, sort of sugar-obsessed kids. They eat the icing, don't they? They might eat the cake, but it's the icing they're interested in. Often we're like that, aren't we? What a, a dreadful mistake. Go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 5. And the writer says, Keep your lives free from the love of money. Now what he's saying there, make sure that you never put your trowel down because you're always going to be digging weeds up that are growing around you. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Remember what Jesus said, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. Because riches give us freedom to do things we couldn't have done otherwise. And then our deceitful hearts think that the true freedom lies in the freedom we have to do things with money. That's a total lie. That is complete bondage. Our freedom is in following Jesus. So there the writer says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. There's one way, one sure-fired way to know whether you're in right relationship in regards to these things. And it's simply this, are you content with what you have? There may be things that you'd like, that's no problem. But are you content with what you have? Because the great tragedy of life is um, that, you know, that, that, that if, you're, if you're just concerned and taken up with what you haven't got, 
You're not even enjoying what you have got. What a silly way to live. I mean, that is that is just daft, isn't it? And, uh, you know, sort of like that's that's like the child who's told you're not getting after today, you've been naughty, and they say, well, I'm not going to eat my first course either then. And, and then go to bed hungry, all upset, because I haven't eaten anything. That is folly. But that is so often what we're like, isn't it? And then it goes on to say, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Because that's the cake. And you can have your cake and eat it. But keep your lives free from the love of money. You see, if you've got money, that's, that's icing. That doesn't really matter. And uh, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And the reason that we're content with what we've got is because we've got Jesus. And because he's in control. So if there's something I long for, no matter how much I long for it, and it might be no problem that I long for it, he will give you the desires of your heart. But the point is, if I haven't got it yet, it's because it can't be good for me. Or he'd have given it to me. So if he doesn't want me to have it yet, well actually I don't want it. Because I've followed the Lord long enough to know that when I've made sure that I've got the things sometimes that God didn't want me to have, they didn't make me happy. They spoilt me anyway, spoilt life, took me away from the Lord. So therefore the Lord is with us, that's enough. If you go back to 1 Timothy, and here we have, I think, I would say probably the definitive um, teaching in the New Testament in, in regards to money and material things and, 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 and the thing that, that we're talking about. 1 Timothy and uh, chapter 6. And uh, firstly, we're going to read from 6 to 10. And um, then we're going to read verse 17 to verse 19. Right, so first of all, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So if you really want something, don't let the gain that you want be money, houses, anything like that. No matter how legitimate those things might be, nice holidays, I like holidays for heaven's sake, no problem having a holiday. Just make sure that the Lord's okayed it before you go. That's the thing, that's the key. It's not whether or not holidays are right or wrong, nothing wrong with holidays, but it's whether or not the holidays you go on, the Lord's given you permission. But as soon as we think it's our right to have a holiday, and this is, this is where we, we, we get above our station, it's not our right to have anything. Do you see that? This will become clear as we go through. For we brought nothing into the world. Remember what I said earlier about we came out of our mother's womb? That's where we came from. We had nothing. We were naked. Not even food. Uh, clothing. For we brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men 
into ruin and destruction. Now, underline that in, in your mind. If you want to understand what the Bible says about money, underline this statement in your hearts. Alright? It is not a sin to be rich. It is a sin to want to be rich. I'll say that again. It is not a sin to be rich. It is a sin, however, to want to be rich. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And he goes on to say, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, the thing is, if you want riches, then you love money. And the nature of money is that if you love money, it's a root of all kinds of evil because you'll find there's nothing you won't do to get it. doesn't mean necessarily you're going to go out and rob banks. But when people want money, it does begin to destroy their character. Because their ethics decrease in direct proportion of their desire to get rich. All right. And this is why often when you meet rich people, this isn't the whole, the whole story, but often when you meet rich people, you meet rich people who have got rich because of an incredibly degraded attitude to other people whom they've had to walk over in order to get rich. All right. Now, it doesn't mean every rich person is a bad person, far from it, but as a general principle, and again, this is what the Bible says, in the letter that James writes to the Christians, you know, they had a tendency, you know, like a rich person came along to the church and he got the plum seat. And he said, what are you, you kowtowing to the rich for? He says, they're the ones who exploit you. He says, you know, they're the ones who trick you into working long hours for hardly any wages. He says, well, but don't kowtow to them. Because that is often what the rich are like. But the important thing for us to see is that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And that is why we mustn't want to get rich. If God prospers us, that's fine. We work hard and God prospers us, that's no problem at all. But if we're working hard, it's not for money. If we're working hard, it's because God wants us to do our jobs to the best of our ability. And then he says, some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we've seen people in this fellowship, haven't we, fall away because of the love of money. That their lifestyle, you know, what I call the curse of modern day yuppiness, it, it just gets them. And eventually it takes over and the Lord is pushed out and other things, uh, you know, sort of like social standing and all this sort of thing takes his place. And then in verse 17, now Paul writes directly concerning those who are rich. And notice he doesn't tell them not to be rich anymore. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There you got it. He says, these people who are rich, he says, I honestly want them to enjoy their riches. But he says, make sure that they're not arrogant and that their trust isn't in their money. And he says, look, command them to do good. Now, here's the leader of a church being told to command the rich people to do good. To be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. 
Because remember, money's like muck, only good when spread around. And he says, in this way they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And often, if you've got a problem with money, one of the best things you can do is just give it away. That's the best way to loosen our grip on it. You'll find as a corollary to that that you can't outgive God anyway. But if you give out of a right heart, it doesn't matter how much you shovel it out, you know, the front door, it'll come in the back door. You, you, you just, because that's the way that God is. But we've got to make so sure that these weeds are not getting us. And uh, I remember the thing that Robert Lee always used to say about this, and it's so true, that at the end of the day, it's like a game of Monopoly. And that, that, that whether you've, you've, you've got Old Kent Road and that's it, or whether you've got hotels on Mayfair and Park Lane, one day the game is up and it all goes back in the box. And whether you're in a one-bedroom council flat unemployed, or whether you're a multimillionaire in one of these big mansions in Chigwell following the Lord there, wherever you are, one day you're going to die. And it's all going to go back in the box and you're going to stand before God. It's as simple as that. How foolish if we ever think that our security or our desires can ultimately be satisfied by that. It's, it's crazy. Now then, in Haggai, the response was good. And in verse 12, we see that Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the whole remnant obeyed the voice of God. And it says, then they feared the Lord. They responded. They feared the Lord again. They truly repented. They thought again about the circumstance. They were honest. They came clean. Yes, why are we saying it's not God's time for us to rebuild the temple? We know full well we should have been doing it 15 years ago. We stopped. We slacked. We've put ourselves first. They came clean. Simple as that. They just said, right, that's it, Lord, you're absolutely right. Sorry. So that's what repentance is. Sorry. And then they got on with the job in hand. And immediately, what's the Lord's response? The Lord said to the people, I am with you. Encouragement. When we do repent, when there are things in our lives that we know are wrong and we put them right, when we do that, or often we fear that the Lord's up there saying, well, and don't do it again, you know, slap, slap, slap. Don't let me catch you. No, it's I'm with you. I haven't stopped loving you. The Lord doesn't love us more when we're good and he doesn't love us less when we're bad. But he does want us to be obedient. And when we haven't been, and when we put things right with him, he's just there, open arms, encouragement, I'm with you. He'd never been anywhere. He was with them all the time. And you'll remember what Jesus said, uh, that I am with you always to the end of the age. And in Hebrews we saw it, didn't we, when the writer said, you know, don't, you know, sort of like, don't, don't get tied up with money, you know, don't love money, don't depend on money. And then he says, because the Lord is with us always. That's why we don't need to get too tied up in it all, because the Lord is with us. And he was with them then, he's with us now. And he never goes anywhere. And then in verse 14 it says, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Judah, uh, sorry, Zerubbabel, Joshua, 
and the whole remnant of the people. See, the Lord stirred up their spirits. They honestly said, Lord, we want to be as you want us to be. And in response to that, the Lord stirred up their spirits and enabled them to be like that. Because remember, following the Lord, it's not what we do for the Lord, it's what the Lord has done and continues to do in us. Remember, Paul says, the gospel is Christ in you. Jesus lives in us. We have his power. We have his nature. And if we truly align ourselves with him, then he can stir us up to do things that otherwise we couldn't have done. Remember Paul, when he was talking about contentment, said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because Jesus lives in us. Of course we can. Of course we can be content because Jesus lives in us. And then what happened, it says here, they came and began work on the house of the Lord on the 24th day of the sixth month. And within 24 days of Haggai bringing this first message to the people, the work started again. And after 15 years of slacking, after 15 years of not being obedient to what the Lord wanted, now they're back on target. Now they're back in fellowship with God. And now, where the blessings weren't going to be upon them, now the blessings are going to be restored. And it's exactly the same for us. Wherever we realise that in regards to our individual following of the Lord, or whether it's our commitment to the church, or whether it's both, whenever we find that there's a serious lacking and the Lord is challenging us on priorities or whatever, well then we can know that as soon as we just change our priorities, then everything is as if it was always as it should have been. Because there is no condemnation. And it doesn't matter what it is we've been slacking in. Whenever the Lord shows us that something's wrong, if we admit it and if we put it right, then as far as he's concerned, it's as if nothing was ever wrong in the first place. Remember, if we ever come to the Lord in confession and say, Lord, I've done it again, he says, what? You've done it before? Because if we confess it, he forgives it. And he keeps no record of it. He doesn't bring our sins to remembrance. What chance would we have if he did? But he doesn't. And so therefore we can know that wherever, and I mean, the point is that, uh, you know, in response to teaching like this, obviously there can be Christians who are, you know, sort of like really in, in major trouble with the weeds. I mean, deadly trouble. And, and, and they really need to, to get back, you know, following the Lord. And, and, and they're a fairly extreme case. That may be the case. But remember, there is no Christian who isn't having the weeds wrap themselves around him or her somewhere. So this is something we all take on board. It's not just for those who may be on the edge of backsliding, although it is for them. But it's for all of us, because remember, the weeds are growing up under all our feet. And this is something, it's, it's rather like any, any, if you ever hear a believer saying that their problems with pride are over because God's dealt with it, there you have someone who simply doesn't realise how proud they are. And in the same way that if you ever hear somebody say, oh, well, of course, the weeds, they're not a problem to me now. 
money, that's no problem to me. But it might not be money, but it might be other things, you see. But the point is, this, as soon as we say, I'm safe from the weeds, then we can know we're in deadly danger from them actually. Because remember, it's the deceitfulness of riches. And the weeds have an ability to deceive you into thinking they're not there. So this is something for all of us, every believer, to look at and to take stock of. Right, next time we'll uh, see the other messages that Haggai brought to the people.